Okay. Hi, VJ. Thank you so much for coming on to Venture with Grace. Thank you, Grace. Super excited to chat today. Awesome. So to give the audience a little bit of background, VJ is a field CTO at Skill AI, and he, prior to that, he was the director of engineering at Apple, and he also co-founded a company with the founder of YouTube as well in the past, and he is a proud U of I alumni, which is where I uh, went to my undergrad. Anyway, so today, uh, why don't we start with like a little bit of your background, and then we'll dive into all the exciting things happening in AI and businesses. Yeah, yeah, excited to go into my history and, and super excited to talk today. I, I know you, you've you had, over definitely over the last week, you've had a, an amazing lineup of folks with backgrounds in AI and ML, so really excited to share our perspective as well. Um, so our work here at scale, we're really kind of a foundational layer for a lot of what's happening in the generative AI revolution today. Um, we often are in the involved or in the loop um, whenever people are trying to use generative AI to do tasks that are at human level, whether it's planning or reasoning, and engaging capabilities that previously only human beings could do. And you really need these generative AI models to perform at high levels of accuracy and precision in order to do those tasks correctly. Um, if you've used a generative AI model and you've engaged in maybe a chat session with one of them, um, and you asked a question, and you've seen something that seems off in the answer to the model, you know, maybe there's an inaccuracy, um, or maybe you asked the model to do something on some other site, and the model couldn't quite figure out how to do that. Um, oftentimes, figure out what to do next, like, what, what do you do when the model is not capable of doing something that you believe it should be capable of doing in the year 2024? Um, we are often in the loop at, at some level trying to find out both how do you diagnose what the problem was, you know, what set of evaluations can you do in order to understand what the model really is capable of and then where it fell apart in that aspect of its interaction. Um, and then also figuring out how to resolve those issues, how to make models more capable, more accurate, um, how to go about ensuring that a model can answer coding questions or can go use um, tools on websites or can go and do and planning um, work for you um, at, at the level that, that, that we all believe these models are capable of doing. Um, definitely this year and, and over the next couple of years, as well as the models get more sophisticated and more capable going forward. Um, so my career, you know, my background in machine learning actually dates back really far. Um, I go back all the way back to like 1999 when I was an undergrad and I, I was just playing around. Um, so it actually, you know, my work in machine learning predated, you know, even just having code on the internet. There was no GitHub back in 1999. Um, There's no easy way to like find machine learning code. You couldn't just download a model off a website. Um, so really my, my very first experience, I, I was working in biochemistry. I wanted to try out a neural network to try to um, tackle a really difficult problem with how a protein has evolved across the entire um, animal kingdom over millions of years. Um, but the only way I could do that was I went and I picked up a book and I started going through that book and I noted the research papers that were there and I found the most recent research papers at the journal uh, of my university in the library. Um, and I just ended up writing code by hand to build like a simple neural network. Um, and the, the technique I used was called backpropagation to try to um, to try to train the neural network and help it learn over time and work with these proteins. Um, so you can imagine it was a pretty um, toy model. It, it was not like a, a, what we'd consider a, a, an amazing um, AI model today. Um, what I could do just by myself working with the workstation was, um, was not that advanced. Um, but I already, from that experience, I got really excited about what um, AI and ML could mean going forward. Um, got really excited about the idea that you could build a model that mapped to how human beings think and how we, we all learn from the world around us. Um, ways you could train that model that just rely upon increasing sophistication. Um, one early thing I even saw with that toy model was that sometimes it gets stuck in this local minimum. It would get stuck in like a pattern of thinking about this problem that wasn't accurate. Um, so trying to come up with all sorts of techniques to get it out of that small like uh, hump that it's in and try to get towards um, the next level of what we could do was a really interesting problem to take on. Um, so over that, you know, I, I spent years, um, you know, both at Stanford working on different ML techniques. Um, and then I ended up joining YouTube right before the Google acquisition um, and, and started thinking through aspects of ML that could drive the discovery of videos. Um, so my team at, at YouTube, we built a lot of the search experience around how you might search for videos. Um, trying to find a new video that was uploaded just that day when you're typing something in the search box was a major problem for us. Um, and so we spent a lot of time trying to figure out what we could learn from the video themselves. Um, you know, if someone uploads a video and they didn't enter any title or description on that video, or the title was maybe just like four characters that someone had typed really quickly on a mobile phone as they were uploading it. Um, you can imagine back then we didn't have iPhones, and so everyone was just trying to upload stuff all the time, and no one could like really write 
valid descriptions. Um, so it's, it's an interesting machine learning problem to say, what can we learn about this? What, what can we take from the first couple frames of this video, from the user that's uploading it, from the location they're uploading it from, and what can we do to actually help people discover or find that video that might be interested in it? And use that to help like inform their knowledge of the world around them, You know, especially when there's breaking news happening around the world. Um, we wanted to make sure YouTube was the first destination people would go to to find out about what's happening and really get authoritative answers in real time. Um, so. ML at YouTube really evolved over the years. I was really excited to get participate in some of the early days of convolutional neural networks, um, other approaches that look at the video data and analyze that. Um, but after that, me, um, Chad and Steve, Chad Hurley and Steve Chen, we all left YouTube and did a sort of incubator of using those ideas, you know, ways you could apply machine learning to discovering the world around you to all sorts of other um, types of experiences, whether that was um, articles around the web or discovering through social bookmarking sites like Delicious, which, which is an early site to help people share content that they're finding around the web um, and help them just understand all this range of stuff that's happening beyond what you could do with just traditional search. Um, and so one of the interesting things um, we did at the incubator was focus a lot on live video and what it could mean to share things live and in real time. Um, and me and Steve launched a startup called NAM that was focused on um, understanding what was happening in a live video session using uh, machine learning techniques. Um, so one of the things we focused on was, you know, if you were doing a cooking class and let's say you had like a chef sharing um, a bunch of ingredients that they were using to make an amazing Chinese dish for Lunar New Year, um, you could use machine learning to understand what was happening in the video, um, what was interesting about that, um, key moments that someone might want to share with someone else. Um, and also the great thing about live streaming, you know, as we can see today sharing on LinkedIn Live is you can engage lots of people around the world. Um, you could talk to people with different perspectives, finding ways to use machine learning to help share that and help people understand that was something we're interested in. Um, so I ended up joining Apple through that. Um, you know, Apple has always been a company I, I've been a big fan of. Um, amazing things happening with AI and machine learning there. Um, over the last couple of years, you've seen, you know, that being brought to like new hardware and new services that have been brought out. Um, so I was really excited to get to participate in that over the last couple of years. Um, but really, you know, my work here now at Scale is built upon all of that experience. You know, the fact that machine learning can really just change how human beings experience the world around them. And it's really this assistive tool that's going to transform all our lives over the next 10 years. Um, and so really proud that the work we do at Scale is foundational to all of that. Mm. Okay, so I feel like you're definitely so you started like doing machine learning and AI like a lot longer than most people even know about these terms exist. And I wonder like what are some like what are like because last year or like two years ago we basically seen like AI become like this extremely popular tool for everybody. Like and I wonder like how does it I guess like what was the differences between like when you first started to now like what is like the major change uh, in terms of technology and later on I have like so many questions about um, how business apply skill and like AI to it but yeah yeah, yeah. totally yeah there are not many mo moments in technology where you can pinpoint to a specific month or a specific day where which is really a turning point for the industry but it's definitely true for generative AI that the launch of ChatGPT in November of 2022 was, was really a turning point for, for all of us. Um, that really what was exciting about that wasn't just kind of the academic and technical research that went into that, um, of which you know we at Scale were an important partner on helping build kind of human data pipelines that powered the, the, the alignment that went into launching ChatGPT. Um, it wasn't just the, the research kind of focus of that, but the ability to get that in the hands of users and what OpenAI saw from the excitement of how users were using that ended up being a really key breakthrough for all of us working in generative AI. Um, and it's to a lot of credit to the OpenAI team. You know, I, I think when they launched ChatGPT, um, they knew that this was a really interesting, capable, powerful use case. Um, but I think even they were surprised by the speed by which people started using ChatGPT when they started uh, using it. Um, and really what that meant for how people rethought how they should be interacting with technology, with computers, um, the sort of questions you could ask, um, the level of creativity that you could get out of answers, especially for, for, for individual human users that were using these models. Um, so that, that's kind of been an inflection point for all of us. And really the work that we did leading up to ChatGPT's launch in partnership with OpenAI and a couple other big research labs um, has really accelerated over the last couple of years. Um, so one key technical term that was important there um, which was instrumental to the launch of ChatGPT is this technique called reinforcement learning. 
And specifically, you know, reinforcement learning has been a term that's been around for a long time. Um, it's been really important in robotics. It basically involves this idea that you can use really powerful models or other information about the world around um, an AI model, um, what you consider the environment that the model is operating in, and incorporate all these different techniques to train that model on a way to interact with that environment and really helping the model understand what's the best policy, what's the best way to think about how I should adjust to changes in the environment and plan and do, take an action and then see what the consequences of that are so that I can try to accomplish something that's out there in the environment. I could try to get a reward or get a goal or to have the best output of this model that I could possibly have. Um, that general field of reinforcement learning has been important for a long time. Um, but over the last couple of years, this, there's been this idea of how human beings can be part of that feedback to the model. And the general technique is called RLHF, reinforcement learning with human feedback. Um, we are one of the leaders in building out the capabilities of that technique. And we've taken it from just saying hey, a small group of people sitting together can give feedback to a model and say, hey, this response is good or this response could be better um, to now the scale at which we operate today, which is we work with experts in lots of different fields. Um, you know, here at scale, we work with folks that um, have medical degrees, that have law degrees, that um, are creative writers that have done and, and written poetry that people could recognize um, and help engage like this range of human experience um, to being the human feedback that goes back into the model, what we consider expert feedback. Um, sometimes that could mean someone looking at a model output in a field like poetry and looking at the level of creativity that the model can do today and giving feedback to the model and being like, that's a good start. But, you know, if you were to write a really great poem that someone would remember, um, you know, an hour later or two days later or someone would want to share, um, this are ways where you could think about human creativity and the human experience and you can adjust the output to, to match up to that. Um, having that feedback and perspective, not just from people that have backgrounds in writing, but maybe know how to write great poetry in Japanese or Korean or, or French or Spanish um, and all the cultural nuances that come with that um, is really a range of feedback that we can give to models to help them more capable today. Um, so everything I, I talked about at the beginning of this talk where if you've ever seen an output from a model or you've tried to have the model do something that's important to human beings and you realize that it's fallen down on some dimension, um, we really think this aspect of expert feedback and human feedback and how you incorporate that back into the model and, and also how you use that perspective in order to evaluate how the model's doing um, ends up being really key to, to the future of this technology. Totally. I wonder since like, you know, you guys are focusing on 10 different areas. There's insurance, automotive, defense, um, metaverse, VR, logistics, financial services, social media, agriculture, e-commerce, and energy. So you guys are serving like all different kind of companies in terms of like, and uh, in, in terms of like in helping them um, adapting into like AI and then like creating an AI tailored AI solution for different types of companies. Uh, I wonder as a field CTO, like what are, like how do you kind of like manage to, you know, having insights into different categories of things as well as like, you know, fine tuning the data to make sure it's applied into different field. Like how do you, what is the thinking framework in terms of like managing this really big scoop of work? Yeah, yeah, that, that's a great call out. So we, you know, both work in the public sector with lots of government partners that are adapting um, generative AI techniques to the work they do. And we do a lot of work in what we call enterprises. So Fortune 500 companies, you know, brand name companies you would recognize that I would recognize that, that everyone would um, understand as being important to how we, we interact with the world around us. They're all considering ways where they can use generative AI to do their work and build their businesses better. Um, and so we've tried to, to find a way where we can adapt all the learnings and insights that come from these really powerful models that are being released, you know, at pretty much every month at this point um, to the work that needs to be done at the business level. And, and the platform we use to do that is called our generative AI platform, the scale generative platform or SGP. Um, this platform is really kind of a, a key opportunity for a business partner, someone that's thinking through a case that um, can be measured in terms of return on investment, 
or in terms of the, the safety that they gain by uh, using generative AI to look at instances where um, there might be issues happening in the organization. For example, for financial services companies, one of the industries you mentioned, um, one of the interesting uses of generative AI might be looking for examples of fraud that are happening within a set of chat messages or interactions that might be between customers and, and folks within your organization. Um, another interesting use case might be looking for just changes in reports that you've written about companies. You know, do you see trends over time as the macro economic environment changes in the sort of language that you're publishing in research reports um, and should you be aware of that in order to give better feedback to the people writing those reports on ways in which you can you can structure your responses um, those are all really interesting applications of generative ai which is able to look at what we'd call unstructured data data written by human beings or data that's written in natural language or data that might have charts and graphs or other images included along with it and, and leverage the insights of these models in a way that wasn't possible with previous data science techniques um, one common thread we see along businesses, they understand the potential of technology to do that. Um, and the, it's really um, kind of amazing right now to see all these different centers of excellences that are cropping up in companies where researchers are trying out different pilots to attack those problems. Um, but a big challenge that we see that we try to adjust at scale is it's once you have a pilot, and you have a really talented machine learning research team that's driving that. Maybe they're looking at fraud detection or they're looking at these research reports. Um, it's really hard for them to figure out how to go from that pilot to something that they can do with confidence in production. And, and the difference between the pilot and production is that you kind of have to measure how you're performing and you have to trust that you're performing at a certain level of capability. Um, and you have to be able to report within your organization and how you're doing and that you're gonna be doing better over time. Um, so we've really built out the, our generative AI platform for industry in order to focus first on evaluating how model performance is doing, um, which is not just the individual model itself, but the application that you've built around the model. Um, that might mean aspects of going and retrieving data from the right sources within the organization. You know, data can be stored in a variety of ways. They all come with like significant challenges and how you find that data and how you understand the, the accuracy and authority of the data itself. Um, and so we built the evaluation platform to look at this entire end-to-end -end application and problem and figure out, you know, how are we doing today? How are we doing, uh, you know, a couple of months ago? How has that changed over time? Has it changed because aspects of the data that I'm accessing are different, you know, or other aspects of bias or other things that I need to be concerned about that are impacting my performance? Um, so then when you start with evaluation, you also think about ways where you can be better and you can optimize these, um, these the performance over time. And so we spent a lot of time at Journey by Platform coming up with solutions to that. Some of that might be around the data retrieval step itself. It might be finding the most authoritative sources of data you can, the most timely sources of data, and ranking those higher in what you present to the model for the model to consider. Um, in other ways, it could be thinking about the planning and reasoning steps and, and orchestrating those differently. Um, and then lastly, we spend time on fine tuning models. So um, we are one of the partners with OpenAI on fine tuning GPT 3.5 um, and now GPT 4. That this is a, a technique that's becoming more common as well. Um, but it's really taking a look at the model and stating, can we use a lot of information that we have as a business um, and be able to make that model more accurate in a particular domain? Um, let's say there's a financial services company that cares about investment reports. Um, we can help fine tune that model to be much more accurate in how it talks about um, investment details um, in a way that a general purpose model is never intended to do. It's never intended to get into really detailed financial technical jargon with an end user. Um, you know, if, if someone in my family or my daughter is asking a question about Apple computers and how that stock's performing, they probably don't expect to see the output match up to the way someone working at a large bank is going to expect to see that. Um, so when you fine tune models, you can get to more accurate and authoritative languages. And it, it turns out that actually improves how the model plans and reasons about the work it should be doing as well. Um, it understands the data sources that uh, an investment professional would be using in order to access that and write a report. Um, and it's able to come up with follow-up steps much more accurately. Um, given that this fine-tuned model is built just for financial services rather than something that's for general purpose use. Wow. I feel like there's a lot to unpack there. And I feel like you definitely gave us a really good overview from the technical perspective. Um, I wonder, I want to use like a really random example I have in my head, right? Like um, I don't, uh, okay, so let's say e-commerce as one of the big sector you guys are focusing on. Let's say shop, if I'm Shopify and I come to Scale AI, um, how do we work together? What is like the tailored solution for me? And then um, I guess like there's Shopify, there is mm -hmm. e-commerce, there's like their competitors, right? Let's say if two of the competitors, a competitive company come to you, um, how do you make the solution different from each other to make sure each company can leverage their unique advantages to succeed? Yeah. 
retail and e-commerce is such a great example. And I'm glad you brought up that example because um, there's a range of different ways where of AI is going to transform e-commerce over the next couple of years. I think almost no one will contest that. I bet if you ask any exec at any given e-commerce company, do you think of AI is going to be important technology for you in the next three years? Almost always you'll universally get the answer yes. And then you'll also get a little bit of fear about how quickly the things are moving forward and what that means for their industry. Um, so really, you know, the first place we start when we talk to any given organization, you know, really high performing, really incredibly um, knowledgeable people about their area is try to figure out where within the organization generative AI is being applied first and what sort of impact people expect it to have and try to figure out what that means for how these applications are going to be built. So a great example for e-commerce, you know, that I can imagine a future where a lot of the ways in which we shop for things, you know, when I go on my um, Instagram feed today and I see something really interesting and I, I want to buy it there, um, that might be changing in the future as these generative AI techniques get more powerful. Um, it could be the images that I look at could be generated by an AI model. It could also be, you know, how I find stuff could not just be a search query, but it could be me asking about a specific situation. Like, let's say I have a dinner party that I'm going to go to Friday night with my wife, and I want to find outfits that are appropriate for this scene or this context. Um, a generative AI model could actually maybe help me navigate through that with much more sophistication than, than just I could do with a search query alone. Um, those are all really exciting opportunities, but they might not be the immediate opportunities for e-commerce and retail this year that are going to really transform the business. It might actually be a lot more of the back-end functions of how we go about um, fulfilling orders, how we go about addressing customer support, how we go about building our brand voice and making that consistent in all the different ways we might talk to channel partners or to customers. Um, those sort of back office functions might be the first place to really be transformed by this technology. So when you talk to people in these industries, you'll hear a lot of that. You'll hear a lot of like, yes, we know there's a lot of like, customer visible opportunities that are out there. Um, and yet there's a lot of things that happen behind the scenes that end up being just as important for us to navigate um, and to really see the impact of this technology first. Um, so next step there is we try to figure out what are the, um, the what are the ways in which you can responsibly use AI for those scenarios? And, and what it means to deploy responsible AI can really vary very differently depending upon the use case you're addressing. Um, you know, for example, where you're talking about customer support tickets, it's really important that when you tell a customer support agent, hey, this is the sort of answer you can give to um, someone that's dealing with a bad order or someone that's dealing with um, you know, a really difficult transaction that they're working on. Um, this is the right tone of voice that you talk to as, to represent our brand. This is the way in which you um, help the person with follow-up feedback. This is the way in which you might follow up you know, a day later and, and ask if you re resolve this issue or whether um, there's additional help that that person needs. Um, all of that kind of needs to be built into the AI application to help your organization understand the best possible way in which you can interact with the customer. And it's not responsible to have a model that gives throw-off answers or just, just ignore customer complaints and tries to advise the customer support agent, tell them like, hey, you know, you should drop off this call instead of answering it in a more detailed way to this user. Um, that actually is not responsible because it ends up you know, kind of hurting customers, ends up hurting the customer support agents that, that don't learn the right way in which you should be interacting with, um, with customers on the ground. Um, and so we try to find ways where we can evaluate how the models are doing, um, that they're able to talk to every customer fairly, um, that they're not suffering from bias based upon aspects of customer interaction. You know, let's say there's like chat or text threads that you're having with the customer and the customer has misspellings or typos in the thread. You don't want to suffer from the bias that you should treat that customer differently just because there isn't 100% accurate um, language written in, in those chat threads. You want to be able to adapt and say like, hey, you know, in spite of the fact that there are typos there and the responses I give back to that user, I should make sure that I'm talking with this right tone of voice um, and that I'm very clear and concise in how I communicate. Um, so once you're able to evaluate that on all these different dimensions of, of what it means to responsibly deploy the AI model, um, then you can spend time thinking about how do you go about measuring that in production? How do you go about improving the work that we do? Um, and really focusing on all the different parts of the application that you might be building and opportunities to make that better. Um, so for e-commerce and retail, a lot of times that might be driven to the actual impact you're having on the bottom line or your ability to, to focus on efficiency. A lot of times though, it's focused on customer satisfaction scores. You know, if that customer was talking to a customer support agent that had an AI model helping them in the background, maybe as a co-pilot, what sort of satisfaction scores do you get from surveys or other um, feedback from customers? And do you see that improving where there's a model helping out the customer support agent over time? We're seeing a lot of that today. You know, as you do those surveys, you see a big improvement um, when people are interacting with someone that's assisted by a model because they say, hey, that customer support agent was able to get the right data that I needed in real time quicker than they did um, you know, a couple months ago. 
And when you see those customer satisfaction surveys, you know you're having the impact that you want to have on your business, um, even though this might not be the, the, the most user visible case of, of Generative AI. Wow. Um, I feel like there's just like definitely so many things within this answer that I find like extremely interesting. Um, you mentioned about like, you know, measuring the impact you're having and then the customer satisfaction. So for shopping specifically, it's like the customer satisfaction, right? So I wonder like um, in terms of, let's say if I'm a Shopify or if I'm a, any company I come to scale for the solution, um, like I really like your thinking framework, but like, I guess like um, how long do people typically see um the reaction from the customer like from today i come to scale for a tailor solution um uh, you know what are things that i would get from this um i guess this like entire so like i guess like do i like i guess like how does the business process work and then like how how long will i be able to see the results for example customer satisfaction and how is that being measured yeah, that's a great question. I almost flipped the question. I'd say the, one of the key reasons why a customer would come and talk to scale instead of trying to do this without um, partnering with us is that they know that it can move a lot quicker um, leveraging what we have. And really what we have is this platform that's adapted all these learnings that we have from working with the world's leading research labs and looking at these new model capabilities over um, you know, the, really the last couple of years um, and making sure that those kind of insights are something that a researcher on the ground at that you know, e-commerce company or the financial services company can use to build these AI applications around these models. Um, so our Generative AI platform, you know, obviously we, we start from taking all these insights around evaluation and what it means to do test and evaluation models at scale and use that for these specific industry um, use cases, whether that's customer support, whether that might be things like um, you know, a, a helping financial advisors create better research reports, um, adapting all these insights that we have around how you might build test and evaluation for um, customer and facing use cases to these internal business functions um, ends up being incredibly critical to help those machine learning engineers, research teams, product managers move a lot faster than they could without us. Um, so we often see if you look at the timelines that people have for development, um, within these organizations, they might be thinking about the pilot today. They might be thinking about how can we get this in the hands of people internally that could try out this customer support co-pilot. Um, can I do that in a couple of weeks? Um, but then if you ask them a little bit further out and you say, what would it take to do this at scale across 10,000 customer support agents and know that you're having a business impact and get the customer satisfaction surveys back and know that that had a big ad adoption. There's often a big question mark there. People don't know if that's something that's going to take six months, if it's going to take nine months. Um, and that ends up being a huge different in time scales that can have a huge impact on the business where you're talking about um, you know, customer satisfaction driving maybe an additional 10 million or $100 million of revenue um, or like people you know, having really positive experiences with your brand and posting about it in social media and that really driving the, the brand forward. Um, you want to make sure you know the difference between six months and nine months and what it's going to take to build this out. And if you can do anything to get that closer to three months, that's like definitely within your, your, um, your mission statement to try to find a way to do that. Um, so when people leverage our platform, they often find you get a lot more clarity around, given this use case, given the challenges I'm going to face in game production, what's the realistic timeline I can do to achieve that? Um, what are additional resources I can bring in today as an organization in order to evaluate how this application is performing, um, give feedback to the model, help make them make sure the model has the right guardrails in place so that I'm using it responsibly within the organization. Um, being able to do that much quicker ends up being a real driver for the, the impact that we have within these organizations. Um, and that ends up being something that has a lot of visibility often at the C-suite level. You know, Everyone's now talking about how Generative AI um, is being built across multiple parts of their organization. Um, having realistic production timelines, having realistic approaches to responsible deployment of AI ends up being really critical for leadership to understand the, the transformative impacts of technology. Um, and that's often where, where our platform plays a really key role. Wow, um, totally. Um, hi, Fan. Uh, I just wanted to say hi to the audience. Anyway, so we'll address the audience question a little later. And um, I wonder when it comes to like, you know, when it comes to like client support and basically, let's say after a big tech company or like after a big company decided to work with Skill and like after you know, after they, uh, so I guess like who is the point of contact in charge of like 
you know, implementing this solution? Um, is that like, you know, because I feel like in for different type of company, let's think about, let's say if you're like a Pepsi, maybe marketing is like a really important department because, uh, you know, brand is everything. And then, um, or let's say if you are a, um, if you're a Costco, maybe like the operational is like the big department that is mm -hmm. like the core business function. Um, and like, you know, if you're in a tech company, maybe the CTO or like um, the head of engineering is like the core function of that company. I wonder um, who, like, who do you identify as your major client? I know that you mentioned Fortune 500 company. Is there any core particular type of company that you feel like skill have like a unfair advantage towards, you know, helping that type of client? And like, what is like the most critical um, department that you feel like AI could accelerate? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I, I think there are probably two parts of the question. One is, you know, what are the roles of the people that we we often partner with in order to figure out the impact of this technology? And the second is, you know, where do we have a, an unfair advantage in terms of the customers we that, that we partner with? Um, so for the first one, you know, I think if you look back even just like five years ago, and you were talking about maybe data science as a really key role that was driving business impact. Um, you would often find like data science as a function where there'd be a VP that's responsible for a lot of data science or applications within the organization. Um, but it was really, you know, kind of flexible where that, that, that individual sat, you know, sometimes they report into a CTO, sometimes um, they would be part of the operations organization. Um, it was really kind of the early days of people figuring out the impact of data science and what it meant, even though everyone knew this is a really foundational technology and, and, and a level of insights you could live from these early stages of, of ML being applied to data science. Um, and so it was often like not easy to figure out for a given organization where that's at and what level of um, really executive visibility they had around the data science revolution. Um, that changed over time. Like now, I, I think as you talk to companies, you'll see there's much more likely to be a chief data officer, or a chief analytics officer, um, someone that has really strong organizational responsibilities for building data science as a core technique. Um, what we're seeing right now is a similar transformation happening about generative AI and the power of these foundation models and the impact that that has on business. So whereas before, you know, two years ago, you might have talked about a VP of ML at one of these large e-commerce or large financial services companies. Um, and that VP of ML might maybe is responsible for talking to five different um, teams within the organization and try to find ways where they can be a good partner and just consulting maybe or advising on how ML could be applied to the problems you're tackling. Um, that's changing over time where people are thinking a lot more about AI as a C-suite responsibility and something that needs to be discussed at the executive level and almost every different um, executive level meeting. So you're starting to see titles like chief AI officer crop up. Um, and a really interesting one might be a chief AI ethics officer, someone that's responsible for responsible AI and what that means for a given organization. Um, and the backgrounds of folks that are taking on these roles um, are a mix of having the AI and ML foundations to understand what this technology is capable of and what's going to be capable in the future, as well as the understanding of what it means for humans to use this application, um, the social impact of that, the impact on organizational structure and organizational dynamics, what it means for a customer support agent to be assisted by a model instead of that model trying to replace the customer support agent directly. Um, all of those kind of perspectives on how this is going to transform business end up being really important at, at the C-suite level. So increasingly, we're talking to people with those kind of titles. You know, They are spending time every week talking to the CEO about the impact of AI and the, their technology and their business. Um, they're thinking through ways where that has impact on traditional data science functions, as well as ways where you could interact with people in HR, people in legal, people in other departments that are all using AI today. Um, and find ways where we can all kind of as an organization come together on, on the consistent responsible use of this technology. Um, so where we, we kind of have a, a, um, an outsized impact in terms of industries that have come and partnered with scale, I will say it's been surprising to me that it's actually been some of the most regulated industries where we've um, seen the best use or, or the fastest use of AI this year. And I have some theories about why that is. Um, you know, so, so examples of those regulated industries are financial services, insurance, healthcare. In all of those cases, they know they're really critical business decisions that are made that have a significant impact on the lives of the, the, the customers that use their products. You know, for financial services, that might be a mortgage lending decision. Um, for insurance, it could be how you've routed an insurance claim to make sure that's resolved appropriately. Um, for healthcare, there's obviously ex examples where it has impact on people that are dealing with um, you know, uh, health insurance and, and questions there. Um, 
where those industries have a lot of um, regulation require or reporting requirements associated with them, that's often where they've spent a lot of time thinking about the data and the governance of the data over the last couple of years. And they might be farther ahead in understanding what sources of data they might use for generative AI than someone in a non-regulated industry might have spent time on. Um, because they have to spend time reporting on this to uh, the correct agencies, um, they have to spend time thinking about real issues of bias or um, misrepresentation of, of people's backgrounds in the data. Um, for example, where you're using AI for hiring decisions, it's really important to understand that you're not biased by you know, educational background, age, demographics, all these other things that are really bad to be um, biasing a decision about hiring for their skills and the capabilities for the role you're hiring them for. Um, so if you are working in one of those industries, you probably already have a certain perspective on your data that you use in order to address that those reporting requirements. Um, and we spend time now thinking about generative AI and what that means as, and as a new perspective across this data that may exist in multiple different parts of these organizations. So at, at, at the larger company level, oftentimes it's not the case that there's a single kind of data lake or, or a single source of data where everyone kind of gets data from. Oftentimes there are multiple silos of data and that can be for a variety of reasons. You know, in a lot of these industries, there's often you acquire a, a smaller company and you get data from that company and you're trying to integrate that together with the data you've had as part of a larger company over time. Um, other times a team might have raced ahead and built an application and they have new sources of data they've used for the application, but it's not quite integrated. Um, generative AI is incredibly powerful powerful technology to cut across those boundaries and bridges and really understand maybe how you can join that data together where someone um, should have access to more data than, than just sits within that silo or get a new perspective on that data. Um, and so we've often found those industries are best suited and best able to push ahead and understand how they can leverage generative AI to think about different perspectives on this um, and to really come up with authoritative answers to questions that they have internally leveraging all these different sources of data that they know and, and, and have built over the years. Totally. I so for unskilled AI, like the demo day you guys had, um, Alex showed like one of the function was like, for example, for social media, you can tag or like data can help you understand which marketing channel is performing well. Mm -hmm. And for like e-commerce, um, you can basically, there's like a couch that's like a black couch. You can uh, type in like, hey, like put this in front of a castle or put this in front of like Disneyland or whatever. So, and then the picture will it basically leveraging AI to create better shopping um, experience or like better shopping um, example pictures because there's like a lot of small business and all that kind of things. Yeah. Uh, as you mentioned, like the clients are primarily from Fortune 500 companies now. I wonder what our smaller companies can do to leveraging AI to improve their businesses. Yeah, that, that's a great question. So um, one of the interesting things about having like this generational impact of this technology and a really transforming impact is that it's both really large corporations, organizations, and, and even governments that are thinking about the impact of this, as well as everyone with smaller startups or small businesses that are trying to figure out how they can do their work more efficiently or, or how they can understand their customers better using this technology. Um, one of the interesting insights that we've had is um, the ability to uh, think through exactly what your strategy is around which models you want to use and have that inform the sort of applications you want to build around that. Um, there might be some cases where you are trying to do something that's pretty sophisticated. It might be looking through multiple social media posts. Um, it might be trying to find patterns in that post in real time. And then you might want to automatically update a dashboard, send an email, um, have an alert sent to someone based upon something that you see. Um, so it's really not just understanding what's happening in real time, but having that drive some future action of what you could do. Um, so really, the orchestration of ML is something that's relatively new and something that um, we have been pushing ahead on with our generative platform. Um, and it's important as a small, medium business, you know, if you don't have the resources of having a thousand ML engineers like a large corporation does, um, to understand what leverage you do have. You know, do you have, um, you know, really interesting interactions with your customer that happen in social media or maybe Discord or another channel? Can you leverage that to gain insights that you wouldn't have before? 
Um, can these models help and assist you and help you understand trends that are happening and get ahead of the curve ahead of some other competition that maybe is also looking at similar trends? Um, and then trying to drive a way where you can build this AI application around that idea, that insight that you might be able to gain so that it can inform you and it can do it in a way that you understand what's happening, um, whether that's through an email, whether that's through an alert that's sent to you, um, a way where you can understand as a business things ahead of the, the game. Um, so we you know, have found oftentimes as a smaller company, you have to figure out ways where you can build quickly, um, get to a pilot, um, navigate that space um, really fast. Um, but oftentimes now where you are a small company, you're partnering with other larger companies, um, that can be where, uh, you know, the sort of platform that we have, where we are often working with some of these large Fortune 500 companies, um, is something to be aware of. You know, we've built a lot of capabilities there to help these large companies understand how to responsibly deploy AI. And so they may ask those questions of partners as well, whether those are individual channel partners or individual brands that they work with. Um, they might ask a brand that's using AI-generated images, how did you guarantee that there wasn't bias in the images you were generated you know, related to the sweater or this hat that you're selling. Um, you know, the people in those images shouldn't suffer from bias or there shouldn't be misrepresentations about the sort of jobs people with different ages or people of different backgrounds are having in, in the images that you're sending over. Um, so being able to document that and share that with partners, whether it's larger marketplaces that you're working with um, or larger uh, you know, marketing channels that you operate in, um, that's gonna be a really important part of the, the story going forward. Um, I think you're seeing a lot, the, especially this year on the policy side, um, where people are talking about reporting requirements where you use AI-generated images or AI-generated text. Um, and that's really an interesting area that we participate in as well, because we think it's important for people to be open and transparent about some of the risks of this technology um, and to understand how everyone can share more details about how AI-generated content is being used and shared and what the possible harms are related to that content. Just so also that people can understand as models get more capable, these are things we need to be able to measure and observe as a society to understand what they're doing and what the impact is on, on all the, the channels that we use. Totally. I wonder if let's say like I have two parts of the question. One is like as a like a solopreneur or like as a small business owner slash um, creator, um, how do I leverage AI to improve? For example, let's say making my audience bigger or like let's say like if I want to um, invest in like AI tools to help my business, what should be the first thing I think of? And then what are some tools that, tools that you recommend for um, people with like smaller scale businesses? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, a great question. So one of the huge advantages you have as a small business is you often have an opportunity to get to know your customers as a founder or as, a, as someone running a business at a level that's really hard to do when you get to scale. And you can use a lot of insights from talking to your customers to inform what you're building in terms of what product development you need to do or what you know new colorways you might need to consider the sweaters that you're 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 selling on a marketplace. Um, you might hear like, oh, you know, I love that that fit a sweater, but the color seems a little bit out of date. Um, you might hear that through social media, you might hear that through a Slack channel that you might have with like some key influencers or folks in the fashion industry you work with. Um, as a small business owner, you have that superpower of being able to leverage all those conversations and, and get ahead of the competition in terms of what you're building. Um, AI can be incredibly useful for all of that. And you know, regardless of whether you use some of these consumer AI models, um, whether it's you know, ChatGPT or you use maybe Google Gemini or some of the models that are out there, um, you can leverage a lot of the multimodal capabilities of those models to gain insights that are really kind of powerful. Um, so multimodal means you can pass in an image, um, you could take a photo of a sweater, um, you could share profile pictures of customers that are chatting with you on social media. Um, you could pass that into the model and ask questions to the model. And the model can give you outputs either as chat, which we're all used to, or it could even render images for you as part of that output. Um, and increasingly, we're even seeing models that can generate charts and graphs and other presentations. Um, this is a, a real superpower this year that people spend a lot of time thinking about. Can I generate a presentation end-to-end -end using uh, AI? And that's really the starting point of how I'd have a conversation with a distributor or someone else that's an important partner for me as a small business. Um, so finding opportunities to leverage the, the multimodal capabilities uh, of the models is a great start. Um, I do think with that, there also comes risks that you need to be aware of. You know, the, the models can suffer from 
um, bias associated with how they were trained. Um, and that bias can suffer. It, it can be really surprising when you see it. You know, you could ask um, about people with different racial backgrounds, whether they'll be successful at a given job. Um, and the, the model can come with biased outputs about how, whether people will be good as doctors or financial advisors or other images that you're trying to generate. Um, so it's important to be aware of that and important to be responsible in how you use AI and how you disclose the use of AI to the partners that you're using that with. Um, so it, hopefully those goes hands to hand. The new capabilities are going to be developing over the course of the year um, and the ability to evaluate how the models are doing on responsible AI dimensions is going to evolve. And as a small business, you'll be able to leverage both of that to, to really transform the work that you do. Totally. What about, so like some of our listeners are like investing in the AI area. I know that, uh, you know, you're also uh, like, you know, you're a Sequoia scholar. So like, I wonder what's your thinking framework when it comes to investing in the next generation of AI companies? Yeah. I mean, our, our perspective at scale is actually really unique in that we are um, kind of one of those foundational companies that works across the industry. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we get a really interesting perspective because we get to work with a lot of different model uh, builders, um, folks that are really racing ahead with new capabilities this year. Um, we get to see a lot of new capabilities in part because we're trying to make sure those capabilities um, actually can be used accurately and reliably. Um, and so that gives a, a really broader perspective in the industry that maybe any one you know, individual company might not easily have a, a perspective on. Um, so one of the things I, we see a lot, um, there's a huge opportunity to build really new, interesting um, industry-specific businesses on top of these models. Um, we're seeing a lot where people might go and build the best model for, um, for let's say, e-commerce for talking to customer support agents. Um, we see a lot where people are using the models to use, and maybe some of the new multimodal capabilities of the model to build new applications that users can use to create profile pictures or avatars and do something really creative there. Um, I think one of the interesting things about this year is the multimodal capabilities models are racing ahead so much faster than I think we could have anticipated a year ago. Um, people are build, rebuilding the image generation stack almost from the ground up so that they can more accurately answer questions about um, what specifically is happening in the image of a shoe. You know, does this shoe have this the right colorway? Does it have uh, laces that look a certain way? Does it have the right soles that I'm looking for? Um, all those sort of questions you can now ask about an image using one of these multimodal capable models. Um, and, and part of the challenge now is figuring out how do you give that model the right perspective on the data it could be using to answer those questions. You, know, you could have a, a, a assortment of a thousand different product images. You could have a database of customer support tickets you've answered from customers asking questions about your shoes. Um, you could have a lot of information about your distributors and suppliers and other things that might be relevant to asking about where did the fabric in the shoe come from? Did it come from Peru? Did it come from China? Did it come from another country? Um, if you think about the range of things you can use generative AI to do, it's really important to figure out from a startup perspective, you know, how do you want to talk to um, customers about the sort of models you're using, the sort of data that it can leverage. Um, and then really often where co companies come to us at scale is that we built the best test and evaluation platform to really make um, really definitive statements about how the models and applications are performing, which I think a lot more uh, of startups are going to be spending time to give out. How do I tell a customer that I'm able to achieve this level of accuracy or precision or recall at the task that's being asked to do? And if you can't answer those questions, if you just say, hey, I built a model, it's going to go look at all your images, it's going to do this thing, but uh, you know, we, we don't have any solid numbers to back up how well it does. Um, I think there's going to be a lot more skepticism about taking that approach in the future versus having uh, capabilities that are really backed up by test and evaluation, having solid numbers to test with to that. Um, so we hopefully, you know, our platforms can be one of the leading platforms that a lot of these startups use in order to do evaluation um, and to share that with customers, with potential partners, with others that they're working with in the future as well. Totally. I wonder, um, let's say when you're evaluating, there's just like so many companies that are in the AI space that are coming out every single day. Um, I wonder if you are um, an angel investor, what are, let's say, three category of things that you would look at? And then like, what is the best way to figure out who is the best company? Would it be going through, let's say, um, like a YC um, hacker news to look at like what everybody is using or like how I guess, I guess like what's a due diligence process because for example um, like you know a company that's like uh, helping to like basically their solution is to uh, fine-tuning fine data or like any type of like I guess like or data segmentation or something like so they're specialized in a particular domain I wonder what are what is like the thinking framework of like filtering which company is going to be important, which which company is not. 
Yeah, that's a great question. You know, one of the amazing things about generative AI in this revolution is there's a lot of energy excitement happening out in the open in a transparent way about models people are, are developing, um, new ways of training those models, um, new evaluation sets you can use in order to understand what the models are doing and what they're capable of. Um, and we at scale, you know, we're, we're a big participant in that as well. You know, we announced that at the end of last year, we're launching um, what we're calling the SEAL Lab, S-E-A-L. Um, it's a safety evaluations and analysis lab within scale. Um, and that's led by Summer Yu, who's a former um, RLHF lead at, at Google Bard. Um, she's really leading this uh, this ability that we have to work with the open community, to work with researchers, and publish a lot more in an open, transparent way about what we're seeing in terms of model capabilities, um, and really how you can evaluate those capabilities. How can you understand that dimensions of safety and helpfulness versus harmlessness, um, how models are going to be performing today and in the future. Um, ensuring that in the form of data sets, in the forms of models that can be used in order to evaluate other models, um, different techniques that we know we can use in order to test how models do or ways in which they fall apart um, and do that in the open. So as someone interested in investing, I would say the number one thing to look for would be those kind of open and published and transparent work that a lot of startups that are participating in the open source community are, are publishing, um, which sometimes comes across on like Hugging Face and other repositories of models and evaluation sets. Um, sometimes through social media, you can see um, research papers published. Um, there are a lot of preprints published pretty much every week. So if you look on social media, you'll see probably 10 different research papers that are all talking about something that's really exciting and really interesting avenue to, to take on. Um, and at, at scale, both through our SEAL lab and through other research that we publish, um, we try to contribute to that as well and share insights you know, as are relevant to the community. Um, so that, that's the number one way to stay ahead of the curve. You know, I, I think you see it first in research, you see it published, you see evaluation sets and capabilities that are released through models that are released open. Um, and then you can see the applications of that as startups adapt that to different business use cases. Um, so if you start and you understand what's going to be important in the business sphere, you know, three months ahead because you understood the research that went into that, um, you have a real leg up on anyone else that's trying to understand the impact of this technology. Um, and for this year in particular, I'll state, you know, multimodal is really important. We're also seeing a lot of advancements in coding capabilities of these models, um, models that can write code themselves and execute that code. Um, be able to do planning and reasoning, being informed by you know code that that's written is something that is really a superpower of these models that human beings can't easily do. You know, I can't write computer code in my head and then execute that code and then have that be part of the answer to the next question that I give you. But a, a model can do that. Um, so seeing a lot more of that happen in the future is something that's really interesting. And and seeing open research published about that, I think, is really going to inform a lot of what startups are thinking about and, and how they 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 adapt to the future too. Mm. So one, like one of the interesting, so like, best, by the way, like we should also talk about a research paper that you published, like, so um, the Prestidio AI framework, um, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, so the, we at Scale, we spent a lot of time working with policymakers, of which there, there are a couple different categories. Um, so the Biden-Harris administration is one. Um, they have been spending a lot of time thinking about um, the, the, the USAI Safety Institute and, and the work that's happening there. Um, some of that is being led around um, ways in which we can be responsible with how we develop AI, um, ways in which we can be open and transparent as a society about the impact of AI on democracy and other ways in which we interact with each other as human beings. Um, the U.S. is really leading the way on a lot of that kind of um, really just thought leadership and then research and reporting requirements that are going to come as a result of that over the next couple of years. Um, there's also in the UK, there's AI Safety Institute there that's racing ahead with some really interesting insights and perspectives. Um, one interesting perspective they have is what can people do with a model that might be harmful um, that you can do beyond what you could just do with Google search alone or that you could do to race ahead of what someone with a PhD in a field could do. Um, and thinking about what that means in terms of, you know, uh, biology, chemistry, other things that the models um, have a lot of capabilities around um, that could enable someone that wants to do harm to society to, to have a really um, uh, just a significant impact. Um, in the EU as well, they're spending a lot of time thinking about this policy space, and they are also focused on a different set of harms that are particularly relevant to them. Um, for example, they care a lot about biometric scanning and detection, um, the use of cameras and AI associated with those camera feeds and how you can use that to, to profile individuals that are in a given area. Um, so you're seeing a different set of harms and policies and requirements there. Um, so what the Presidio AI framework is, and it's part of the World Economic Forum that, and a working group there that's been working on it, um, we've been contributing there by thinking through ways where we can structure all these conversations around some common principles. Um, really, what sort of guardrails can you build around AI? What can we do to evaluate AI models using initiatives like you know, Scale Seal Lab and our test and evaluation platform? Um, and ways where you can mitigate the harms that you see as you test these models. 
Um, one area in which we think, you know, Perseo framework is talking about that we think is really important is the idea of red teaming models before they're released. Um, a red team means a team of human experts that specifically tests with trying to break the model and trying to get it to do something harmful. Um, so what I mentioned about biology and chemistry, possible harms to the problem, it could be a red team expert trying to act as if they were someone trying to um, to create, you know, anthrax or something that's a, a really um, challenging um, biological agent and asking the model how they go about doing that, how they go about finding a sample of anthrax and seeing if the model can be tricked into revealing an answer it shouldn't reveal to a person trying to do harm. Um, and the red team expert can often try a various range of techniques. They could try asking the same question in English and then trying again in French or German or Portuguese and maybe you can trick the model in a different language to do something that it's not gonna do for you in English. Um, adapting all of those insights at scale ends up being really important to the responsible development of these models. Um, and it's part of what you're seeing as these frameworks evolve uh, across multiple countries that they're thinking a lot about testing and evaluation, they're thinking a lot about red teaming, and they're thinking about the process that, that we all should go through before we can responsibly release models to the public. Mm. I feel like that's definitely something to think about. Like, you know, you mentioned about like the, there's, um, like, I feel like one of the things I would definitely check out after this is like, you mentioned like skill, uh, skill AI as like skill lab um, mm -hmm. and all the research, research paper you guys have published. Um, one of the interesting observation is like recently, like Andrew Ning published like a new article about uh, basically AI become like a commodity in all the tech companies there is, you know, Google has Bard and like, you know, OpenS, ChatGPT and uh, like Meta is also working on their own, you know, AI tools. And I wonder um, for a big tech company trying to win the AI game, what do you think they should do to stand out among the competition? Because um, since everyone is trying to own the ChatGPT equivalent of whatever they're doing. Yeah, that's a great question. It's an area where focus can be incredibly important and in understanding which capabilities are particularly important to you. What are you trying to get the model to be capable of doing six months from now that's not capable of doing today? And really starting with test and evaluation and understanding what the capabilities are. So example of that might be one of these uh, organizations you mentioned, they might care a lot about coding. They might say like, oh, being able to write Python code really accurately and do that across a program that's not just 20 lines of code, but it actually be 200 or 1,000 lines of code that you're, you're asking to generate um, is a really difficult task. Um, but to measure how you're doing today, you got to start with testing and evaluating the models. And those tests shouldn't just be simple Python code that you're asking to generate. It should be pretty complex code. It should be with a lot of constraints around it. It should be with the appropriate unit tests written, all these like standards and practices that, um, that computer scientists and coders learn over the years. You should make sure the model is the best example of how those individuals would write that code um, and the outputs that it's giving. If you have a good set of evaluations that you can set up, um, then you have a really good starting point to think through what's next. You know, if I do care a lot about writing Python code and longer programs, um, what do I do in order to give the model good examples of what that code looks like, help it understand how that's tied together with what a human user might ask for and what I expect to see in the output, um, ways where you can make sure the follow-up questions that human asks, like maybe the human asks to edit the comments in some part of that code, that that's handled accurately. Um, ways in which you can get the right post-training data, the, the sort of human feedback data that, that we generate um, to make that, that possible. Um, and now I think we're seeing this great feedback loop where people start with the evaluations and they think through the timeline of where they get that human feedback data and other sources of data and make improvements to the model and measure that improvement over time. And they can come up with a more realistic plan of attack to getting to that new level of model capability. Um, so once you have that focus and you understand what you're trying to accomplish, and then you can start off with the evaluation of how you do today, um, then you can really plot the chart ahead and see what, what the model might be capable of doing, you know, if you play that for it. What does, what will AI look like in six months? Yeah, I think you're going to have models that are multimodal by default, um, where they're are thinking about the world through the, the, the ways in which human beings interact with the world, whether it's through our vision, through our hearing, um, through all these other senses that we have, um, much more capable than, than what they could do with just text alone. I think that's going to be really transformative for how we all experience the world through AI. It might be, you know, AI might be a feature of our cameras or it might be how we um, use our, our, our headphones um, just as much as it is a chat interface that we use with. 
Um, and I also think on the coding side, I think you're going to see models that are able to create applications in and of themselves um, and do those applications at scale. And that's really a game changer for anyone that's working in business that relies upon data, relies upon um, you know, these platforms that we all use every day, whether it's Salesforce or Slack or these other platforms, um, how they go about interacting and, and getting data out of the, the, the business environment around them. Um, so I, I think if you think six months out, th those two things alone are going to be pretty huge to how we all use Generative AI. Um, we're really excited to scale to kind of be a part of all, a lot of that with kind of the foundational work that we do. And we're excited for our customers to also get that in front of users. I wonder what are, so like, what is like a, if you are educating a business leader who are like running a successful business, like how do you educate them on AI? What do they need to know to actually have a conversation with you? Yeah. You know, first I'd start with the organization that you've set up. Um, if you're the CEO of a startup, you're the CEO of a large company, thinking through who on your leadership team you could trust with to get the right perspective on how AI can be responsibly deployed and ask the right questions. You know, it's not just, can I use this AI model to do this thing? It's how can I make sure that I'm evaluating how I'm performing when I do ask that model to do that? And it, does that model actually help the human beings that are doing that task today do their work better? Um, how do I back that up with actual numbers rather than just making the assumption that AI is going to make this task better? Um, if you have the right individual organization that are that are responsible for getting that feedback and that data to you and that they understand what sort of questions they should be asking, um, then I think you're going to be much more set up for success rather than trying to find 20 different people within your company, um, which are all going to have different approaches to like building a new pilot and, and trying to push that forward um, and never having that full transparent perspective on how you are doing with generative AI um, and what transformational impact that's happening across your entire organization. Totally. Um, on that note, thank you so much, Rijay. Um, thank you, Chris. Where can we find you? Uh, yeah, so I, I'm on social media and on Twitter, but um, you can also reach out to me at scaleai. I'm vj.karunamurthy at scale.com. Um, excited to chat with folks that are really just building the future, seeing um, where things are going to go. Thank you so much. Hi, Perry. I just saw the audience. Okay, I'm going to end stream. Thank you so much. Um,